Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Noah. Hi, y'all. In recent months, there's been a flood of news coverage about uh, restaurants mainly, but really a number of low-wage employers complaining that they just can't find workers these days. Um, The theory goes, as has been espoused in one media outlet after another, that um, the expansion of UI benefits that came with the... um, stimulus bill that Democrats passed under Joe Biden back in, was it March now? Probably, if I'm honest. Effectively, that gave unemployed workers, people receiving unemployment, I should say, um, extra $300 a week. And that's the reason they are not willing to line up for jobs at, say, Dairy Queen or McDonald's or any number of places that have seen fit to publicly complain about this. The horror, by the way. Right. There's been a number of images of restaurants with signs on their front door saying, because no one wants to work anymore, and and that's the exact language they tend to use, we aren't open today, or we are short-staffed, or, you know, one thing or another designed to get customer sympathies with the restaurant and its management over the uh, workers themselves. And, and I'm not going to lie, it is a little bit infuriating that expressing yourself in the language that like a five-year-old would use is sufficient to get consumers putatively on your side. Because some of these we should mention, sometimes what you see is instead, hey, this place isn't open, we all quit. And that, that gives me a very different feeling because, you know, I like everyone else, I live in this society and therefore am a consumer. And that is uh, on occasion. You love to consume. Everyone does. Being a customer, it's the sacred, most sacred act that we all partake in because we all have to do it now and again. Therefore, it is holy. But anyway, the point being, you know, sometimes you will see something like, hey, uh, yep, nothing doing here. We're all gone. It's like, great. Awesome. Thank you for, for showing well, I guess showing your boss who's actually the boss because you do the actual work. But even in even sometimes what you'll get is some places will actually be a little bit more passive aggressive about it. So they won't say no one wants to work anymore. They won't go that obvious about it. But they'll say something like, because we're short staffed, we will be seating tables more slowly than usual, which is literally what I saw just this past week uh, when I went out to a place. And that, I like that one because it doesn't do the full-on, yeah, these people are terrible for not wanting to work here, but it still makes that your problem as a customer. So it still finds a way to, in the end, twist the knife in. And, and by the way, of course, a, a more recent news hook with this, that extra $300 a week, which we were told, by the way, is why it was fine that Joe Biden wasn't giving 2,000 checks out the door like he promised, because 
uh, Democrats, liberals loved to tell those of us who were saying this is a broken promise that those extra $300 a week would go to help tons more people and that the 2000 checks were a one-time thing and that he never really even promised them and can't you do basic math and whatever the hell. Those extra benefits have now officially been allowed. Uh, states have now been allowed to strip them back and to use those funds for other things, including apparently, according to the president himself, hiring cops. So even that promise, the thing that we were told would help the, the people that us rich leftists who all live in suburban mansions were saying needed to happen, apparently, um, I, I guess that's gone now, and I don't see a lot of liberal noise about that. 23 states, to be exact, have chosen to just not accept the federal money for expanded unemployment. Um, they are the states you would expect. These are states with Republican governors, often Republican legislatures. Um, 23 and all because of the imbalance of power at the state level in this country. And so effectively, they chose to respond to this crisis by pressuring workers back into the workplace by taking away the money that was letting them ostensibly not go into work. We recently read as a group Sarah Jaffe's book, Work Won't Love You Back. And she talks a bit in the early chapters of the book, especially about how much of the welfare state is designed to be punitive and to usher people into the workplace. And it's really been crystallized in my mind these last few months, how much of our government sees its job as smoothing the runway for, you know, teenagers to wind up in Applebee's kitchens effectively. Like that seems to be the purpose in the mind of a lot of state legislators. There's, there could be no higher purpose than this for not just our government, but our society as a whole. And I don't think that's wrong at all. So I come from a different cultural background on this. When I was a teenager, very few of my friends worked. And the ones that did tended to also be the ones that, you know, spent summers and winters in the United States. And uh, or in, well, yes, in the United States. Let's put it that way. Anyway, Just for new listeners, where did you grow up? I grew up in San Juan, Puerto Rico, and so most of my friends didn't work. Our job was school. That's what we were supposed to be doing with our time. Almost all of the teenagers that I talk to these days, because, well, this is fast, in uh, my job, which is I teach, <laughs> there's, there's the bingo check right there. But the, the majority of my students get their work permits as soon as they can and go right into the workforce. And it was one of the biggest culture shocks to me how much of their lives, the moment that they did that, were no longer about school. You know, there was no, for them, there was no point because, well, because we've deprofessionalized education and we've made it less important, but this isn't an education episode. The important part is that we've said, you know, no, you don't need to care about school. That's never going to get you anywhere. What you need to care about is the connections you're going to make and all the, and the money you're going to earn and all this from your job when you're 15, which is a dire freaking thing to be doing to a teenager. Well, we've also organized in many ways our education system such that schools are meant for some people to just be training factories for future employees of the world. The idea of learning things for knowledge's sake, you know, no. is not part of it. it. Doesn't enter into the equation. That comes everywhere from cultural stuff like why should kids have to learn cursive or when are we ever going to use this in real life and whatever, which, you know, low level and a lot of it is just complaining and that's fine. 
But it goes all the way from that up to now you do have schools that are literally designed around that, where the idea is that, you know, the kids will go to school four days and then they'll have an quote unquote internship, which is another word for they do unpaid work for low wage companies. Sometimes it'll be a, you know, it'll be a focus on STEM or whatever, but they, you know, they can't do the complex work. So they're just getting people coffee and whatnot. And of course, it will not surprise you to learn that those schools are typically advertised to low-income families, to students of color and families of color, that they are typically a way out of, you know, a, a certain life situation. And while there have been success stories with them, at the same time, you do have to wonder what damage that kind of educational model does in those communities. But back to the actual point of the episode, mm-hmm. right? The The problem that we have here is that, putting on my, like, you know, non-gringo hat here, we have a society that bills itself as the the highest purpose of you as a person who is not a state legislature legislator, pardon me, is to work, not to be a worker, because then you are self-actualized in that identity. And then you might, you know, start to organize and things like that, but to work for other people. And it is a deeply, uh, obviously, as we're seeing, it's a deeply damaging thing. And people have begun to realize that and they've begun rejecting it. And just as soon as they did, you know, the state and the federal government stepped in and went, hold up, these unemployment benefits were so you could stay just a little bit more on the edge, uh, or or a little bit less, rather, a little bit farther away from the edge of the night. They weren't so you could just not work. That's not what this is. This is supposed to be you accepting that you are embarrassed and ashamed that you don't work for a living. So get back to the grindstone. Right. There's... Shame is a definite element of all public benefits. You know, you will have people who are sort of proud to say, I wouldn't dare take any government handouts, you know, who obviously have never been in the situation where they would have to. In some ways, this uh, little crisis, and, and in fact, just in the last few weeks, you've seen it sort of fade out of the media's attention as they have turned their focus to things like a supposed spike in crime or critical race theory in schools. It, we, we cannot go into that here, but you see how so many of these crises are manufactured. You know, it's about news coverage rather than any actual examples of the problem at hand. Yeah, it when it became clear that the problem here is that, or as soon as it became clear, because our, the news and media and social cycle that we have with everything in this country is now, here's X, here's why X is bad actually because of why X is good. And then, you know, the dialectics, but (laughs) what we had with the unemployment thing is, uh, you know, people are not working at these places. They're quitting on Moss and whatever. Here's why that's bad. And then we never got to the the part about here's why it's actually good. You, You never got that part. Instead, we just started talking about, like you just said, things that basically are just designed to massage like suburban white Americans as ego And, you know, what you had during the pandemic is for the first time for many people, it was the first time of their adult lives where they weren't really pressured to work if they were able to get the benefits that were being handed out through the unemployment system, which for many people was a nightmare. Um, The administration of that on state levels was impossible to get through for a lot of people. You saw massive lines at unemployment offices and food banks during the pandemic. So, you know, you can say that our unemployment system was generous, but 
it was still a system that was not designed to help people in many states. I think in Florida specifically, there were reports about how that system under its their previous governor, um, Rick Scott, had been sort of stripped down to usher people back into work. And it was not meant as a system to actually help people who are out of work. No, this can't be right. You're telling me Rick Scott defrauded American citizens? <laughs> that not possible. That that's never happened before. He's not famous for it or anything. For listeners who don't understand the joke, um, Rick Scott, who is now Florida's senator, famously defrauded Medicare for billions of dollars. It's the largest fraud case Medicare ever settled, and he gets to make decisions about your life. But the thing about the unemployment system, and I'm familiar with it tangentially. I have worked through the pandemic. I've been lucky enough to hold on to a stable job that, you know, decent benefits and pay and whatnot. But also the unemployment system, even under the expansion, what was it? So my understanding is it didn't cover most categories of freelance labor. So that was interesting. Um, Administering it, as you said, is a nightmare. If you're somebody who works in one state, but you live in another, that's already a problem. You have to reapply every so often. It's not they just, and you have to, depending on the state, you have to prove that you're looking for work, which yes. can be kind of a problem because if the only which which is another way, obviously, where it's designed to funnel you back into the workforce and right. not, you know, you're not supposed to be a layabout or whatever the hell the term is now, probably millennial. And then the last bit about that is that even if you are somebody who completely 100 percent qualified for those unemployment benefits, you still that had a very good chance of never getting them, mm-hmm. even if you did everything right. Yeah. Um, I remember a couple of years ago, I was looking through the, it, this wasn't unemployment, this was SNAP, but it was the forms for that in Philadelphia, or it might've been in the state of Pennsylvania. I don't remember what level it was at, but looking, it was a 40 page document you had to fill out. All right. This, this country intentionally is designed to punish you for not being rich. Not not just being poor, just not being rich. You you're the the amount of stuff you have to do to get anything in this country is directly proportional or I guess it's actually inversely proportional to how much money you have. The richer you are, the more you can pay somebody to do all that stuff for you and you don't have to worry about it. You can tweet all day about, you know, which countries you want to coup for their lithium. <laughs> You mentioned the sort of labyrinthine rules for SNAP benefits, and it it's sort of telling that you mentioned that because I think in some ways this mirrors the arguments during the 90s about welfare reform um, that happened under Bill Clinton. Um, mm-hmm. This changed what had previously been um, taxpayer assistance for needy families into the SNAP program. And the upshot of it all was that fewer people received benefits. Those benefits had time limits on them. They had work requirements or an expectation that you would be looking for work placed upon them. And 20 years later, we have seen that that resulted in an increase in extreme poverty. You know, even if you could point to some people at sort of the threshold of poverty who did actually find work supposedly because of these requirements. And at the time, you know, it was another big media sensation that you didn't have the internet so much back then, but you had magazine covers talking about the supposed scourge of single mothers, specifically black mothers in the public imagination, um, who 
didn't want to work. They just wanted to take care of their children and expect to be taken care of in that caregiving, which is something we've talked about on the show in the recent past that, you know, caregiving, it's a thing that we don't really as a society provide. Yeah. And imagine that wanting to have resources to be able to take care of your children. Hmm. Wild. Can't, can't believe people would want that. And I mean, not just magazines, we had presidential candidates talking about seeing, and it was again, young black men in the public imagination. Right. You know, That was Ronald Reagan with the, the, the lobster and the steaks and whatnot. It's there's, we've said this a thousand times before on this show, but there is, you can always make money in serving the, and I mean, this is obvious in serving the interests of the rich and the media, basically yours and my entire lifetimes has had no interest in representing the views of anyone else. And the views of the rich are that everyone should be happy to work for them for no money, let alone any pay they get given. Because just being in your presence should be enough. It's like, you know, how medieval people supposedly believed that, you know, the king's touch would heal scrofula or whatever. Just being in the aura of rich people is supposed to make your problems go away and you shouldn't be allowed to complain about them. And as you pointed out, we now have a level of capture by wealthy people of the state process to where states, towns, cities, the federal government... Everyone seems to think that it's their job to just do rich people's bidding. And I guess under the society that we've constructed, it is because nobody's telling them otherwise, not not loudly enough. And that sort of craze in the 90s resulted in the passage of welfare reform under Bill Clinton, just as this media craze, you know, on a more temporary scale here just a few months ago, resulted in these states, like 23 of them, uh, again, not taking extra unemployment money from the federal government. It has real impacts on people that, you know, the media won't be looking at afterwards. It's not going to be interested in the stories of individual restaurant workers unless there's something particularly salacious or abusive uncovered. And even then, not, not to the degree that we've seen just in these past few months. Absolutely not. I mean, on this show, we've talked before about, you know, Donald Trump removing all members from labor committees and changing labor. No, no one is going to be interested, you know, in changing an obscure rule in the Department of Labor regulations that makes wage theft easier. No one wants to read that story because there's no, you know, it's not obvious what's supposed to hit you about it. And, you know, this is something that that the Biden administration has actually been very good at. For example, the first move they made was to fire Trump's general counsel to a National Labor Relations Board. Big move. Everybody thought this is what he should be doing. And then Biden had that video for the Amazon union. But something tells me that if they didn't have pretty good confidence that that union vote was going to fail, I don't think that video gets made. So it's it's this thing of they make the big moves, the public moves, knowing that then they can do whatever the hell on the other end. And no one will really be watching out for that. And there's another thing about all of this that that sort of strikes me. You were talking about welfare benefits being designed to put you back to work and how in some marginal cases, people who were on the threshold, they were able to find work. The thing that's really, really deeply screwed up about this, and this is true for a number of things, but it makes you as an individual responsible for a problem, not of your making, not of your own making by the people who want welfare reform or welfare ending, really. No welfare termination is what they really want. But you 
are not a job creator. We know that because those same people spend all the time telling us that that's billionaires and rich people and small business owners and whoever the hell else. But you as a person who needs work and is not making that much money, you are not a job creator. You can't create jobs. Ergo, it should not be on you to have to make one uh, a decent, well-paying job so that you can take care of your family. But the way that we've constructed the welfare system, the way that we've constructed government benefits, it is your problem. It is your responsibility to fix a problem that you're also being told you can't solve. You're supposed to be ashamed of yourself for being poor and needing benefits. Right, right. There's there's a level of shame that is associated with working in the service industry to begin with. You know, even if you do manage to find a job there, it's... yes. You know, there are punchlines in any number of sitcoms about uh, people looking for degrees in the arts who are working as a waiter. Mm -hmm. You know, you you get this sort of cultural stereotype of this is the job for people who aren't successful for failures even. And, you know, that that sort of stuff over time, people internalize that, that that gets in your head. Um, there has been sort of an alternate perspective on what we're seeing with this uh, supposed labor shortage, which is that the problem is really on the other side. It is, it's not that nobody wants to work anymore to use their language, but instead it's that none of these jobs want to pay enough to attract workers, you know, despite a shortage that in theory under when you have less supply, you would get uh, higher prices. You, you aren't really seeing that in most examples. Um, you've seen exceptions to that rule of places that are actually raising wages. But for the most part, they are happy to not employ anybody rather than pay them more. Yes. And that, I think, is the actual thrust of getting the customer on their side, because they know that eventually, as we're already seeing, they can get the state and they can get the federal government to go along with them. It's interesting because... You know, I took economics in college. I had to for what I originally intended to teach. It was part of the the assessment. And I was told that, as you were saying, with the the way that the free market is supposed to work, and all these people tell me that they're in favor of the free market because, you know, it ensures healthy competition and all that. But certainly when the free market demands that you pay higher wages to attract workers by the rules of supply and demand, Suddenly, they don't like that so much. Suddenly, they need the state to step in and, uh, oh, I don't know what, what might be the term if it, it to help plan the economy, to help maybe centralize some Another term, if you were being maybe more cynical, would be to coerce workers into huh. But I thought coercion was only when you make rich people pay taxes. <laughs> the point we're getting at is that obviously the free market, even if you want to call it that, is designed. It has to be designed. It doesn't arise like the laws of physics from, you know, the space-time continuum. It it's not a natural thing. It's created and it's created with a purpose in mind and that purpose is ensuring that you don't have to wait too long when you go to Chile's. It's ensuring that uh, teenagers across the country can't drink alcohol but can work in bars and serve alcohol. Yeah. It's designed to ensure that 17 and 18 year olds are supposed to not only uh, make sure that they've got all their community service hours in line and that they're doing enough extracurriculars and that they're getting good grades and that they're coming from the right background to impress an admissions officer and whatnot, pardon me, and whatnot, 
But on top of that, that they also have a boss that they're supposed to be on good terms with when they're 17 or 18. I mean, we've discussed before that the mid-century was kind of an aberration in terms of having strong unions, strong Mm -hmm. worker protections, and that kind of thing. Turns out that the last century was an aberration in terms of maybe kids having to work less. Uh, we're, we're just going to keep chipping away at that until we finally get rid of all those uh, child labor laws. As tuition prices increase, you're seeing that uh, the argument is that these kids just need to get a s- summer job or maybe a year-round job in addition to the classes they're taking in order to pay for college. And who's the beneficiary of that? Who's the beneficiary of kids needing large sums of money? It is the people who can give them and use their labor for large sums of money. Well, small sums of money at any rate. You should think of rising tuition prices as another reason for a kid to work at Subway. It, it's a it's a nice little linkage, especially because when you get them that young, when you start getting people into a workforce that young, they internalize that. Again, uh, this was... Well, because here's the thing. It was a big cultural shock to work with kids who have always seen work as a natural part of their lives. But here's the thing, right? Ideally, and I work with about as an ideal a student population in these terms as you can get, you're going to have a stable family, you have a home, you have shelter, you have food, uh, your health care is with your parents, your education is with your parents. You know, you're, you're about as free from consistent costs as you're going to get in your life, ideally. I know that's not the situation for you know, millions of, of kids, but ideally. Here's the thing. When you're an adult, you know work sucks. Right. And you are responsible for rent and food and healthcare and retirement and education and taking care of your own children and pets and whatever the heck else, right? Like you have to put that money on you. It it isn't going anywhere else. Nobody else is going to take care of it. Nobody else is going to step in and do it. So working with adults who have swallowed this message, hook, line, and sinker, and can't seem to break out of it. No matter how much they'll tell you that their job sucks, no matter how much they'll tell you that they don't like doing it, who for some reason that final light switch just isn't turning on, that is what was really wild to me. The kids I get, they're seeing life from the beginning. They're, they're under, their idea here is that you know one day this will lead to a new opportunity and then that one and that one and that one. But you'll meet people who have been stuck in the same thing for 20 years. You'll meet people who have hated their work, the work that they do, that they thought they wanted to do for ages. And even that, that's just ingrained. And I tell you, coming from such a different uh, cultural background, that was the most depressing thing, discovering how much of a complete disconnect it was. And by the way, noticing that it's some of my oldest coworkers who don't have this problem. That was wild because as much fun as we make of boomers, it's a lot of my boomer coworkers who are the only other people in my building who seem to kind of get that maybe life isn't about showing up to a job every day for, you know, until you die. We're going to take a little break here on that note. We'll be back after this break to talk about, you know, some more of the response to this supposed uh, worker shortage and, you know, why maybe it's not such a bad thing. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. 
Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello, listeners. Shortly after Noah and I recorded this episode, the New York Times published an article that had some helpful data for us um, on this very subject. It noted that in these states where the expanded unemployment benefits were cut off, the 23 states, the data on job applications uh, on sites like Indeed has shown no uptick whatsoever in terms of more people seeking work. Um, the, the idea that ending these benefits would see a rush of people back into workplaces has not panned out for them. It is still early. The article notes um, it's only been a couple weeks in some states, but this is helpful context to have that we certainly would have liked to had when we had our conversation on Sunday. But um, anyways, you have it now. Back to the show. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Still hi, y'all. We we talked a bit in the first segment about um, this supposed crisis of a labor shortage, particularly in low-paying industries like food service. The the story goes that uh, unemployment benefits are just too damn generous. They are just too helpful to people and allowing them to sit around and collect a check without putting in the work to earn it at a Dairy Queen or a Subway. I'm running out of chain restaurants to name drop here. Did you get money from any of them? Because otherwise you're doing unpaid work here. You no. deserve a check. Boy, do I. Yeah. it's uh, Yeah, you should be sitting behind your uh, massive glass desk at Tesla on your phone or uh, traveling around the world or to space while you know, being the, the CEO of Amazon. That's how you earn money for not doing a damn thing with the rest of your life. You, you should already have money and then you deserve it. Because if you deserved the money that you're getting, you'd already have the money. You wouldn't need it. See, right. that's the key portion. There is definitely a circular logic to success in America. It, it's secular Calvinism is you, what it you is. You get success by deserving it. And having success is proof that you deserved it. Yeah, it means you're one of the elect. I wasn't kidding with that secular Calvinism comment. Right. But we have no space to make this a religion podcast. So no, neither the space nor really the desire. Uh, there, there is sort of the alternate aspect to this labor shortage of that, that we talked about about how companies aren't really looking to give any incentive to overcome this new hurdle that they're facing. Um, and I can just speak from a little personal experience, which is that I'm leaving my current job uh, in the next week, actually, and I've overheard bits and pieces about the search to replace me and how that is going. And I expected this to be very simple. It is summer. Uh, students don't have school. They can fill in for what I'm doing quite easily. You know, the, the people who already work the night and weekend shifts. This apparently is not the plan. And my supervisor is intending, as last I heard, to just do my job himself, which very funny. He's not going to be good at it. Um <laughs> They never are. And at, at the same time, they've had a series of interviews trying to fill this other position, you know, a cook that, you know, I hear from 
supervisors and higher ups that we just can't get any good help. I work in one of these workplaces that just can't find any good help, and I do it for twelve seventy an hour. Hmm. Hmm. And and also, I I got a haircut recently, and I overheard at the barber shop. You know, a man came in and you know had a previous rapport with the barber. Talked about how you know if I ever employ someone again, just shoot me. I am done with employees. Um, I, I gathered that he has some sort of shop and he was just bragging about how, boy, I'm making so much money, so much more money now that I don't have to pay anyone. Um, Which is to say that there's sort of a, um, it's not that nobody wants to work. It is that nobody wants to employ. Yeah. By the way, uh, is the third anecdote you're going to submit during this segment that you were talking to a cab driver (laughs) and they told you, you know, I, I had a Thomas Friedman joke that I totally forgot until you brought that up. <laughs> yeah. um, I I will say I have not run into that directly, but for example, I did I did recently apply for a job uh, because I would like to no longer teach for a living, so that you can all strike that from your bingo cards because I'm tired of this bit and I know you are too. I'm going to have to become a teacher just to keep the bit going. Exactly. That would be, we just passed the hot potato of teaching (laughs) from the collective member to collective member. But uh, the thing about it is that uh, during the interview, they said, uh, I asked, this is a full-time position. And they said, well, we're leaning that way right now, but it's possible we'll go with a bunch of part-timers. And it's because the job, you could kind of understand the argument. The job was very geographically spread out. Anyway, reader, I did not get the job, but the the response specifically said, we can't offer you full-time employment right now. And this is not an organiz- this is not a chain store. This is not a small business owner. Um, I wouldn't have applied for those jobs anyway as first resort, God knows. But they were making it very clear that like, eh, this is kind of what we have to do because we're on a thin budget. The secret here that a lot of these people don't want you to know is they don't have a thin budget. Mm-hmm. Um, th- this is something that like four different shows that also do labor stuff I've covered already. But like whenever you hear stuff about like restaurants have the thinnest margins in the business, they don't want that like 90% of them are owned by five companies. All of these, all of these businesses claim to be operating on razor thin profit margins and so on. And yet they always have money to spend on the things that they want to do. And this is true even of, I mean, I work for a school. It's a nonprofit organization, okay? And even they somehow don't have money to pay us well, don't have money to uh, don't don't have money to not continually threaten retirement and health insurance cutbacks, don't have money to um, just give us some stability and and know that we're going to be taken care of for maybe more than a year at a time. And yet, on the other hand, have plenty of money to throw around when it's time to, you know, throw parties or fundraisers where rich people will show up and not give enough money or have plenty of money when it comes to, you know, whatever it is. If it's a management priority, it gets the funding. And that, I think, is it's what's really become sickening about this from the point of view of these companies thinking and I think accurately thinking. That if they just put enough press releases out there about how nobody wants to be employed anymore, the grand majority of us will just believe them, which is mm-hmm. very wild to me because we just went through a year and a half of people saying 
No, I don't have to wear a mask. No, I don't have to get a vaccine. No, I don't have to do any of this. I'm smarter than medical scientists. I'm smarter than the entire you know, scientific establishment. I know what I'm doing. I'm not an idiot. But the moment some company goes, hey, did you, did you hear? Nobody wants to work here anymore. People literally lap that up and they mm-hmm. believe it immediately, even though it's, it's in the same damn newspaper. I also obviously have been sort of looking for employment. Uh, I'm, I'm moving as, as the case is. And, you know, one, one thing I notice about a lot of job listings is they don't even list the actual uh, price of the job or the what, what they will pay you, I should don't say. Don't give them ideas. <laughs> right. That's a reverse internship. There's no mention in a lot of listings of what you can expect to be paid. And in fact, you are often asked, what sort of salary do you desire? And you're expected to know how to answer that question, which is a minefield. Which is another one of those things where we talked about this a few episodes ago, where they, they employers can't give you anything without taking away something else. When you ban them from doing something, they'll find something else to do. It, at least in New York State, I don't know if this is federal, they're no longer allowed to ask you what you made at your previous job. Because that used to be the common way to determine, all right, here's what we're going to offer you. And we know you'll take it like, you know, the the rodent that you are. Um, now they just ask you, what are you looking for salary range? Because they know that that's skirting, you know, the, the point. And it still gets at the same thing. Whereas yeah. if you just had made it the law that you have to list the salary range from the beginning, that might have been less of a problem. Yeah. And the other thing is that that makes employers, and this is the part that really annoys me. Actually, there's a lot of parts that really annoy me, but this is the one that from a pedagogical standpoint really annoys me. Um, We're told to be transparent and clear about everything that we do and blah, 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 which by the way is a recipe for being a terrible teacher. But this allows employers who openly tell you the salary range up front to feel like they're good people for doing that. That should be the minimum standard of what you do. The bar is very low. Yeah. Well, the the bar doesn't exist is the problem. Mm -hmm. There is no standard. Because, and this is something that we talked about on those Human Resentments episodes ages ago. Those emails got a lot less funny, by the way, after the pandemic. They're back, but they're not funny anymore. I distinctly remember that they capitalized employer, right? Like employers were a class, a, a separate class of people. And that is exactly what's happening here. If you're an employer, you have certain rights and privileges. And one of those is just, Nothing is ever expected of you anymore. Like you can just be the worst person in the universe because you gave someone else a job, and that uh, that that gratitude, you know, should be um, that that's what you deserve. Even if the job sucks, even if you're an abusive boss, even if you're the worst human being on the planet. Other than that, you gave someone a job, and that is well, I guess it's the second holiest act you can do as an American. The first one is consuming. Yes. And to the point about expectations being low, this is, they are low in, you know, employer circles, they are low in the media, and they're even low for a lot of workers, if we're being honest. They don't expect much from their work. There there was sort of a famous counterexample to all of this worker shortage narrative came from a ice cream shop in Pittsburgh, which raised its wages to $15 an hour, and according to this headline, had more than 1,000 applicants as a result. You know, who could possibly have expected this? You know, they offered higher wages and got more applicants. Weird. It it was very much treated as a curiosity and not as 
boy, doesn't this make all the other employers look bad and silly? But no, because there's no standards, right? Mm-hmm. When there's no standards, that means that the one that means that the the one person that's avoiding the race to the bottom or the one place that's avoiding the race to the bottom, they're the weirdos. This happened when I think it was SeaTac in Washington State that's built around the airport of that city. Yes. They raised their minimum wage to $15 an hour almost a decade ago now. Right. And they were treated as the weird one. I haven't seen anything about SeaTac sinking underwater. The city's still there. Businesses still exist. They're on fire this weekend because it's probably 105 degrees there, but otherwise. Well, that would be a good way to prevent being underwater, I guess. But <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it continued to employ people. Businesses continue. And when you tell people this, there's this weird thing where they don't seem to understand that that's reality. Even if they have no interest in, even if there's no real self-interest in upholding the crappy system that we have, it, they don't seem to like get that that happened. The, this place raised its minimum wage and the world didn't collapse for it. The, and it chugs along. It's very hard to get past a lot of people's uh, econ 101 understanding of how, you know, things operate. And obviously, even in the economics profession, as skewed and weird as it may be, you know, things are more complicated and understood to be more complicated. But you you tell people in Econ 101 that raising wages means fewer jobs are available and they will go to the grave thinking that is how things work. Well, and I think a ton of these people haven't even, you know, not not that that's a good thing. They haven't taken Econ 101. That's a good thing. Your brain is less broken for not doing that. Speaking but, of somebody but, who but didn't. knowledge gets filtered down from the yeah. other econ 101 takers of the world and from the media and from mm-hmm. the governments and everybody who tells you that that view is correct, which is number one, not true. Let's start with that. Like economists only recently were forced to admit that their whole conception of human behavior was wrong and has been wrong since, well, literally since like capital came out. Like since the 1850s, they've been screwing this up, which is crazy because I cannot imagine, but actually, never mind. I can absolutely imagine a profession getting to screw up for 150 years in a row and and not immediately being discredited. But number two, even if it was right, who gives up? Pardon? If you're a person looking at the world that you exist in, looking at the people that you live around and that you work with, looking at Honestly, at this point in in American society, looking at the problems that this country has, I don't, if you don't think, if you don't um, see how much just a little bit of money, just a little bit more money would help alleviate these problems, it wouldn't eliminate them because for that you need an actual living wage, which no one in this country is willing to pay unless you have them over a barrel. Or you're already rich, like we talked about. Just a little bit of money would alleviate these problems, would make your life better, as well as everyone else's. The fact that so many people's response to this is, oh, but then I want more money, and see that as a problem, that then they would also be empowered to fight for better conditions for themselves, that they might, even if out of spite, be willing to push for more. The fact that people see that as a problem and not as an encouragement is a real death blow. There are 
a lot of people who would only fight for higher wages for themselves to spite those they see as less deserving. Yeah, and I mean, that's not great. But in the short term, you know what? I'll take it over the person who says, you know, then if, if what is it? The, the usual rhetoric is like, if my burger flipper makes 15 an hour, then I deserve blah. Cool, go ask your boss. Right now, you're not going to. It might be nice if you did. Then your other fellow workers, whatever it is that you think you now deserve, whatever X amount of money it is, they might be empowered to go do that too. And that would be a good thing. And the right. wild part to me is that people don't think that's a good thing. Like, this is a future in which we all do better. And instead, most of us, no matter how plugged in we are, no matter how much we're following these stories and so on, seem to be more willing to accept the devil we know, which is a future in which everything gets worse. Another company that uh, you know bucked the trend by actually raising wages in response to a shortage of workers was Chipotle. They they made a big news splash about raising their minimum wage to fifteen dollars an hour, but then they followed it up by uh, raising prices and directly saying that this was the cause of wages going up. Um, the fact that the price increase and the wage increase weren't really proportional, and that they were probably going to raise prices anyways and have done for years, never really entered into their version of the story, which is the one they wanted customers to believe. And they wanted uh, a fawning news media to believe. And they did. They bought it. And also part, part of that story that wasn't getting told is how much money Chipotle CEO took home. Chipotle CEO who forced the company to build a new headquarters because he didn't feel like traveling. Mm-hmm. Which I bet you that in and of itself, if he, you know, had gotten on a plane every so often or driven, God forbid, um, that might have offset the cost of uh, increasing prices. But I guess Chipotle would rather, to be fair, if Chipotle didn't associate the price and the wage increase, you would think that it's so they're not getting, you know, rotten food product anymore. Because uh, we know Chipotle has issues with its supply lines. Among other issues with Chipotle. I think they've been frequent mentions on this show for mm-hmm. uh, labor violations. They, they almost qualify for friend of the show status at this point. <laughs> and sort of famously online, at least, there was a take from conservative outlet, The Federalist, blaming the federal government for the fact that burrito bowls now cost 4% more at Chipotle because they naturally saw the logic as Chipotle would have them see it, that these increased unemployment benefits directly resulted in higher costs for them. And the fact that, you know, thousands of workers benefit from higher wages in the process, you know, gets smoothed over and brushed aside as not really part of the story. So, sounds like that Federalist columnist should ask for a raise. Uh, you're doing public relations for like corporations and the defense industry and like religious organizations and whatever. like. The least they could do is throw you enough to cover uh, horror of horrors, uh, twenty cents extra on your burrito bowl. You know, right. you don't want to be you don't want to be arguing about how much the extra guac costs for the rest of your life here. So you say you've been using, I think, the correct language here. You've been talking about these places as bucking the trend, as trying something different. And here I thought, given how many times on this show we've talked about the tech industry. I thought that was a good thing. I thought innovation was a good thing. I thought bucking the trend was a good thing. I thought creativity was a good thing. I thought disruption was a good thing. But for some reason, when it involves paying workers better, 
somehow it's not a good thing anymore. Huh. So, so it seems that some innovation is bad. I don't know how to, I don't know how to deal with this emotionally. To Joe Biden's credit, and this is twice in one show now that we are crediting the president, Joe Biden, for something, um, he has sort of explicitly, at least on one occasion, sort of embraced the idea that these expanded unemployment benefits are resulting in higher wages. Um, to quote him from a speech uh, in late May, he said, when it comes to the economy we're building, rising wages aren't a bug, they're a feature. And you know, sort of giving the same logic that we're giving, that we have given in many episodes of the show in the past, that if you give workers more of a safety net, if you give them more freedom and more options, they will have more power to ask for more from their employers. You know, this is the argument for things like universal basic income and a number of uh, expansions of the safety net. You create leverage for workers who otherwise are just one of, you know, a thousand applicants at a $15 an hour ice cream shop. And the problem with that, and, and you've identified the problem right there. You've hit the nail on the head because the actual problem is the leverage. That's why these other policies are non-starters unless they're trade-offs. That's why Andrew Yang's UBI takes away every other kind of social safety net. That's why employers many of whom would be helped by something like a single payer or God forbid national healthcare system like an NHS, many of them would actually do better under it because they stop having to pay for health insurance. Right. But they're against it because paying for health insurance is a way you have power over your employees. Definitely. They're against UBI because having that kind of net, that, that kind of safety in your life is something that makes you more willing to mouth off to your boss. And, if the holiest thing an American can do is consuming, and the second holiest thing is giving somebody a job, the least holiest thing you can do is mouth off to your boss. That That's a sin. It's a cardinal sin, in fact. If you're going to talk bad about your boss, do it on the radio. Gosh. Like here, for example. Yes. Yes. The, I guess the argument that we're coming down on is the idea that Actually, it's fine if people don't want to work anymore. It's expected that people don't want to work in a hot kitchen during the summer after a year in which line cooks saw their mortality raise at the highest rate owing to the pandemic. The, The deadliest profession in America. Not cops, not lumberjacks, not construction workers, not any of those other people that you are constantly told we need to worship because they are the the ones on the... No, no line cooks, mm-hmm. the people who make the takeout food that, you know, you got last weekend, the people yeah. that, you know, a lot of you over the past couple of months, uh, as things opened back up, were finally able to enjoy their labor fresh and ready for you instead of being in a styrofoam box. So right. that was the people who, and by the way, that's another thing that's starting to kind of come out about it. They're talking about how part of this labor shortage is 600,000 people died. Yeah. And that's an undercount. Mm-hmm. Like now, many of those people would be old and retired anyways, mm-hmm. but again, line cooks, you know, to the extent that restaurants can't find workers, part of that is that many of them died. Yeah. Many of them died. And things like, what is it, meat packing plants and factories where workers had to work side by side and things like that. I mean, it doesn't matter. We, we basically fed over half a million Americans, and again, that's another count, into a meat grinder. Mm-hmm. 
for a year and a half in a much more literal way in many cases than we usually do. Right. And then we said, no one wants to work anymore. Yeah, because going to work killed you. You can't ask people, you cannot build a society that sucks this hard. You cannot build a society on the blood and bones of workers for this long and not expect them to say, maybe I don't want my fossils to be part of this. Maybe I don't actually be part of the bedrock that builds that, that economy that Joe Biden's talking about. Maybe I don't want to be fed into that. That's a natural consequence of creating a society where work is something you're expected to do until it kills you. Yep. These restaurant jobs simply aren't going to be seen the same way they were before the pandemic, before it became painfully clear to a lot of people that you know their death is just an afterthought in the bottom line of the business operations you know they're willing to sacrifice workers for worker safety workers health workers you know sanity dealing with the sorts of customers they had to deal with over the last year we talked about the abuse they received verbal and physical yeah in order to stay open and to so that customers who flood in don't have to wait too long for their uh, chalupa. Nice. Now now you're avoiding the restaurant names by just mentioning the, the food items. I like that. That's a good move. I think a little bit of confirmation of what you're talking about. So obviously, you know, my, my job is white collar in every form of the... Now, mind you, we did recently post a job where they mentioned all of these physical actions that I can count on one hand how many times I've had to do them over the past decade at my job, but whatever, that's a story for another episode. Anyway, I work a white collar job. And despite that, the pandemic and then how quickly we were essentially told that your health, we care about it rhetorically, but really, if you die tomorrow, who cares? We'll find somebody else. Uh, There will always be some other schmuck with too many degrees and too much training and too much the, and, and not enough money that we can always replace you, you know? Mm-hmm. That seemed to be the moment where a lot of my coworkers realized how profound the deprofessionalization of our job has been. That's been a thing ever since I got into the field. Deprofessionalizing teachers, we all know this. But that was the first time that you could see the gears turning in some of their heads that, oh, this is what that leads to. I cheered all of these things on when I thought teachers older than me were getting the poop end of the stick. And when I thought this led to more advancement opportunities for me, and when I thought this might mean that one day I too will be, you know, insert title here. But as soon as they realize like, oh no, my bosses literally don't care whether I die unless I'm friends with them. For a lot of them, that was the first time I think in many years of not ever that they had realized how replaceable we all are. If, if you're a worker, your boss does not care. They don't care whether you die um, at your, you know, in, in some horrible accident or whether you get crushed by a building as happened in Miami this week. They don't care. To them, you are a liability. And when you start from that point of view, when you start realizing that, then you also start realizing that it is your job as a worker to fight back because you aren't the liability. You do the work. They don't. We've right. talked how many times on this show about how much they hate doing any of this. That guy that you met at the barber shop uh, <laughs> aside, right? Right. 
but that's fine if he doesn't want to employ anybody and he wants to work you know what i assume are probably like 12 hour days and whatever himself cool i don't give a damn that's fine uh, j- just to the point about people being replaceable in the eyes of employers you know looking for a job has sort of made it very clear how there are two classes of job there are the jobs that are urgently hiring on indeed and these are jobs like Amazon warehouse. Uh, there's a lot of listings for that. And then there's the jobs that you would actually want, which you'll be lucky if you get a response from them if you apply. They're, they have so many applicants. They are, you know, like the $15 an ice cream shop. They have more applicants than they really know what to do with. And so they filter you out through tests and various algorithms that we've talked about before. You know, the chance of you breaking through that are slim. The worker shortage only affects those employers who aren't paying anything to begin with, I guess is the point I'm getting at. Yeah. And that's why they're so angry about it. They're angry that the the nice days, they're, they're not even angry at the fact that things might get worse for them. They're angry at the prospect that things might get worse for them. And only for a few months, because these unemployment benefits are set to expire in August, and there's really no movement on Capitol Hill towards extending them further. You know, j- just this one summer of not having enough staff is just th- these people are throwing fits about it. Yep, because that's what they do. They're 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 babies. They're used to everybody uh, bowing to them and asking them what they can do to help. They're used to having local legislators and state legislators in their pockets. They're used to getting everything because they're capital E employers. They're a different class of people because they give you a job. And this is the first time I think really at this point for, for many of them in their whole lives that anybody has ever told them no, and they hate it. And that, that I think is kind of the definition of the last year that, We've kind of found out how many people in this country have built their entire personality around the fact that nobody's ever been willing to tell them no. Yeah. And unfortunately, uh, you know, without absent a, a real knockdown drag out fight, I don't think the federal government and the state governments are going to tell these people no in August. But that's why you need legislation that provides income. That's why you need legislation that mandates minimum wages. That's why you need legislation that mandates strong worker protections. Um, because then it would actually allow, then it wouldn't be a fight every six months, you know? Right. It wouldn't be an attempt to continue trying to expand these piecemeal benefits and so on. It would be an actual move towards a society where maybe for once in our lives, we don't have to work just to survive. Um, we've run up against the clock here and I've got to submit some invoices to various chain restaurants, but, um, for this week, I'm Ryan. I was Noah. This is punching out. You've been listening to punching out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at punching out Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.